0: Well, good morning. If you brought a Bible. Go ahead and open it to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're using the blue Pew Bible, we'll be on page 555. 555. As you turn there, let me just sort of remind us what we're doing. We're going through the book of Ecclesiastes this fall. And so far, we have, um, encountered some things, um, Namely, we've seen that the book of Ecclesiastes invites us to contemplate the brevity of our lives. Uh, we spent our first time looking at the book, looking at this word havel and how it speaks of life under the sun, that life under the sun is frustrated and frustrating um, to us, uh, that it's a vapor and that what we try to get from it, it can never give us. Uh, we looked at how then that that the book has wisdom literature begin to show us that life is not gain. It's nothing, you can't get anything from this life um, that can go on past the brevity of your life, but it's gift. And so now we kind of come to a new section of the book where we were asked a different question that if if, if life is gift, then the natural response is that we should give it away as well. And so that is what we'll begin to see as he continues to look out and describe what he sees, not as life without God, but life in God's world under the sun because of the fall. So let me read for, for us. We'll begin, be in chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them, On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after wind. Then again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil and if they fall one will lift up his fellow but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up again if two lie together they keep warm but how can one keep warm alone and though a man might prevail against one who is alone two will withstand him a three cord a threefold cord is not quickly broken "...better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, for he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move after, who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him." Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Let us pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, your word and your truth. And we ask now that you graciously give us your spirit as you promised to, to open our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. And that as the word goes out, such as a seed in good soil, that you would condition our hearts as good soil so that we would leave here changed people, that we would grow a fruit. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Back in 2008, there was an article that came out talking about this thing called the Rosetto effect. And the Rosetto effect uh, is something that refers to this community in Pennsylvania, Rosetta, Pennsylvania. See, back in the 60s when heart disease was sort of on the rise and um, uh, really was and still is the number one killer of of Americans, at least in the West, uh, there was this small community of, 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 of Italians who had immigrated to this part of the country and they, they lived in Rosetta, Pennsylvania. And the reason there was so much interest about this community in the 60s is because their life expectancy was double that of the normal age of Americans. Their, heart, their death by heart attack, for example, was half that of Americans. And so in 1962, with the permission of state and federal governments, uh, these scientists descended upon this community to do nothing but to watch them. Right. We've got to figure out the secret here. Why are they living longer? Why is uh, wh- wh- why do their statistics, why do their death rate statistics not match up to their neighbors around them? You know, neighboring communities, state, countrywide. Why are they not falling over dead like the rest of us hardworking Americans is basically what they were interested in. And so they set out and they lived in, this, in the communities for several years and just watched and um, and, and so, of course, you know, as they began, as scientists do, began to formulate questions, you know, we thought, well, what, what is the secret to their life? Well, it must be their diet, right? It must be something in the water. But as they watched, the Rosettans drank a lot of red wine. I mean, a lot of red wine. And they, they coupled that with salamis and cheeses, and they cooked red meat, and, and, and everything that they cooked and they ate, they actually cooked it in lard, right? This is... This is not the way this is supposed to go. Common staple was fried sausage for breakfast with eggs in the morning. Well, if it wasn't their diets, then perhaps they exercised a lot. That has to be the answer here, but no. Uh, in between smoking cigars and, as I said, lots of red meat and long lunches, no one seemed to be going for a jog on any type of regular basis. They would be over, overweight, not, 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 not obese, but certainly overweight by today's standards. Um, and so, you know, no model of health here either So it can't be their diet Well, perhaps it was their work I mean, certainly these people probably found The answer to life and their work They were able to tap into what they were most passionate about And they were able to take those passions into, uh, into the workspace And find work And the answer to that was no uh, Most of these men and women worked in the local slate quarries Which would be like mine working um, It was hard, laborious, many people died This is their life So what was it? What was the conclusion here for why the life expectancy of these people was so different than everybody else around them? Well, as it turns out, it wasn't all these things, as we mentioned. The secret was Rosetto itself, as the article concludes. It was the way they lived together. It was their community. How everyone had time for one another, for example. Stopping to chat on their way to the store. Or cooking for one another in their backyards. How families honored their grandparents, for example, and took care of them. They went to church. They did They did not flaunt their wealth if they had it, nor did they make that the goal for their lives. In other words, the article concludes is that the mystery of the Rosettans wasn't really explained in their commitment to individual success and health in this life, but rather their commitment to each other, their commitment to life together. The article says the magic of the Rosettos was, was the total avoidance of isolated individuals crushed by problems of everyday life. In short, Rosettans were nourished by people. That's what they found. So why do we start here? Well, as we start this chapter 4, as I said the preacher's giving us a new question to consider. And, and really how I want to phrase that question is, what are people for? What are people for in this life and in this world? Are they for bettering your life? Are they means to an end? Or are people for carving out life together with? Are they there for, the, for your own personal gain? Or are they there that you may give yourselves away to them? What the preacher will see and show us is that life as gift is meant to be shared with others. And in a culture that asks first, how am I doing, such as our culture, where well, the preacher longs to show us through this wisdom literature is how we begin to change that question to how are we doing, and the way we ultimately get there is by seeing how God actually relates to us in the person and work of Jesus who came not to keep his life right but to give it away so that you and my you and I might have life abundantly so with that let 's look at those three things on your outline. What does the preacher See, and and when we say preacher, we're talking about Solomon. Let me remind you of that. He's the author of this book. And Ecclesiastes is that when you translate that word, it just means the preacher. And so we're going to see what the preacher sees. We're going to see what the problem is. And we're going to see how does the gospel change this, okay? So what the preacher sees, what the problem is, and how does the gospel change this? So what does he see as we read the text as shortly as you are looking at it, hopefully, with your Bible? In short, he sees a human race that is disconnected from itself. That is, instead of sharing and serving each other, serving their neighbor, for example, everyone is only out for themselves. And this is characterized, as we see in the text, by oppression, by envy and isolation. In verses 1 to 3, he sees the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. What was causing this oppression? Well, specifically, we don't really know, but we can tell that it was done by, no, no surprise here, by those who were more powerful than they were. People that came from positions of power and influence. And this type of oppression is not foreign to us today, is it? Globally, we think about genocides, right? Whether in Bosnia or Rwanda, thousands upon ten thousand slaughtered women and children alike. This is what he's seeing. We should think of refugees who would be forced out of their homes. And countries to live in refugee camps where you know, the vulnerable are actually taken advantage of there. That type of oppression. We should also think of those who don't have a voice To speak out against their oppression, whether those who are victims of sex trafficking or even the unborn. This type of oppression is all around us today. It is not a new story for us. And the preacher sees what we see and concludes that there seems to be no one around to comfort them. What a horrible and wretched wretched picture this is. Oppression, as we'll see, is always something that humans do to each other right? Cain and Abel, as we've talked about in this series so far in Genesis 4, weren't just two brothers who sort of embodied oppression towards one another. They were that, but they were also a foreshadowing of what is ultimately ultimately to come because of the fall in Genesis 3. But oppression is something that humans do to humans. No one is being oppressed this morning by the tree outside or clouds, you know, nobody's trying, nobody's Somebody's getting messed up in that direction, right? It's people, okay? It's people who are oppressing people. That's why we say oftentimes that the the Texas heat is oppressive, but that is not what we mean when we say that Stalin was oppressive. It's people who oppress people. And this is what grieves the preacher, and it should grieve us as we move through the text. But moving on to verses 4 to 6, he shows us that the preacher sees that envy, which is the desire to have it all, is really the motivation for our work. It isn't that we would go into the world to do work for the glory of God. Rather, it's, you know, the catalyst is, is, I want what you have. So, what he sees. In verses 7 to 12, he sees another product of life under the sun. And this is a tired story. One of a person who makes wealth and success, their aim, their dream, they stop at nothing to get it. They spend hours studying. Uh, in school, they forego you know, any type of a relational commitment, perhaps, because you know, that would slow them down. Not that that's necessarily wrong in and of itself, but you'll see where this is going. They even disconnect themselves from their families because, well, coming home for Thanksgiving would would cause me to miss out on where life is happening here in my place. And, well, that's how I'm going to achieve my goal. And then finally the day comes after so much sweat and toil. They they get whatever it is they've been after and whatever it is. They get it. They have the career, the money, the house, reputation, the freedom, the ability to say to themselves, I'm valuable. I'm worth something. I made it. But then they look around, they have what? Nobody to share it with. It is a tired story, one we are all too familiar with. And the preacher concludes in verse 8, this is an unhappy business. Lastly, we get a story of two kings in 13, verses 13 to 16. One got there by being in the, sort of in the royal line, but was foolish, didn't listen to anybody. Just kind of enjoyed his privilege in a certain way. The other became king by way of the American dream. Hold himself up by his bootstraps, right? Went from rags to riches. But both kings have something in common here. That is, they were both forgotten. Nobody is rejoicing over them anymore. Nobody remembers them. He says, Those who come later will not rejoice in him. And one commentary rightly links the story to Joseph in the book of Genesis. And we think about Joseph as the last sort of patriarch of. Of, of the book of genesis after abraham isaac and jacob comes joseph and joseph had this sort of rags to riches story as well and we would we tend to think well and highly of joseph as we should but then as as genesis concludes and we open up the book of exodus in verse 8 of chapter 1 we read this now there arose a new king over egypt who did not know joseph and of course we see that throughout all, all the old testament you know these these you know, Heroes of the faith, if you will, die. Nobody remembers them after they go. What's the point? Well, as O'Donnell concludes, the popularity of the high and mighty is short-lived, and thus it's vanity. Daniel Fredericks puts it this way, the whims of the masses and the reign of the wise are as momentary as the direction of the wind. So this is where Solomon leaves us here in chapter 4, sort of staring at King, what's his name, Right? As the people go shuffling by, and this too is a chasing after the wind. None of what the preacher sees in these verses is foreign to us, as I've said before. We see oppression, we see envy as its motivator, and the pursuit of wealth and power every single day. We can stand here in 2017 and honestly say, nothing has really changed. We are still chasing the wind. Why? And this gets to our second point. What's the problem? What's the problem? Well, one of the problems, if not the problem, is that we, see, that we see throughout Scripture is man's self-centeredness. It's man's self-centeredness, his natural bend in life to live for himself or herself. Which means this problem of oppression and envy and isolation, it isn't a generation problem. It's not like it was better before than it was now, or that there are somehow these good old days back then wish we, we could return to. It's not a generation problem. It is a human problem. It is a human problem. In other words, people are alone and hurting in chapter 4 because people are choosing to love themselves and not their neighbor. And that is not a new story in Solomon's day, and it's not a new story for us today. It is a story that has been with us since the fall. This is life under the sun as we experience it. Last week, we defined the fall as with what happened in Genesis 3. We defined that and talked a little bit about it. Uh, this morning, I, I want to move a little further in. I want us to kind of look at it under the, the microscope as we digest this part of Ecclesiastes and try to pull its wisdom uh, from, from its pages what actually happened to us when we talk about the fall after Adam and Eve eat the fruit in Genesis three? They say that it says the book the text says in verse seven that their eyes were opened, if you're familiar with that story, and that they knew that they were naked, and that they sowed fig leaves to cover themselves. And then when God enters the story in verse eleven, after Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked, and, I, and so I hid, God says, Who told you that you were naked? Now, for Adam and Eve, right, to notice that they were naked is to say that they, for the first time, experienced shame and guilt for who they are and what they did. This is sort of the tragedy of this. Their eyes were opened is what that means. Except now they were not open to seeing the world and others around them as neighbors to serve or to carve out life with each other. They were open to fearing others. Out of a deep-rooted insecurity because of what had just happened. In this way, they had become self-centered and not God-centered, which is what life was like up until Genesis 3. They are bent inwards is another way that we talk about this. They are professional navel-gazers, right? And we understand this. Like Adam, this self-centeredness has left us afraid and insecure because God is no longer at the center of our lives. We are. And see, while that sounds good to our modern ears, our postmodern ears, whichever world you want to live in, it's actually terrible because there is no certainty there. It is the blind leading the blind, but we're free, so to speak. Our steps are still fearful because we have no center, no course to follow. We are a tumbleweed blown across the plain, free and aimless, but at the mercy of the wind. That we were created to live with God at the center of our lives, as he did with Adam and Eve. But the fall has changed all this. And as a result, this changed not only how we relate to God, as we talk about that vertical relationship, but it changes how we relate to each other horizontally. Like Adam, we hide. Both figuratively and literally. If you don't know what, what I mean by that, I want you to consider... If you've experienced this yet or not, I want to, like, just consider what the first date is. Right, somebody asked you to go on a date. It's the first time you're going with them. May not be the first time you've ever been on a date. What is that all about? What's the game plan here for that? All right? Do you uh, maybe thirty minutes before you're supposed to be ready? Do you just kind of say, you know what? I want this person to know exactly who I am. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna forego the makeup. I'm not even gonna do the hair. All right? I'm not. I'm just gonna go with this t-shirt. Maybe I'll just go barefooted, right? Because the goal here, right, should be that they should accept me for who I am. Is that, is that what happens in a first date? No, right? A first date is the complete opposite. It's let me show you who I'm not. Let me, let me dress myself up in a way that you'll probably never see me look like this again if we get married. Let's go to places that I have no business going to because I can't afford them. But I'm trying to impress you. All right, let's um, you know. Let, let me talk about things that are mildly amusing and funny, so that you might like me. Right, so that maybe hopefully, hopefully one day you would say yes, and then we could go back to living our lives. You know, <laughs> not stop pretending like we're doing on this first date. Like that's hiding, right? Like we we put up this facade. We put up, and even in our dating culture, we put up this this image of who we want people to see us as. And really, what it is is this is how we think that you want to see me. Because we're scared to death of what would happen if I showed you who I really am. And then God in his wisdom and humor creates marriage and says, Okay, this is really important that you do this. I'm going to bind you two together and put you in a covenantal relationship. So that what? That you're forced to get to know each other in the deepest and and darkest places of your lives. To come out of hiding. This is all here in Genesis 3. This is the fall, Right? Well, along with hiding, we blame others now, too. We don't, you know, we don't take responsibility for ourselves. And we could talk about that in marriage as well if we wanted to. When, when God comes looking for Adam, what does Adam say? Or well, what does God say? He says, who told you that you were naked? And God follows that question with, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Well, what does Adam say? What's his response? Well, she did it. I mean, he totally blames Eve. And then what does Eve say? Well, the serpent made me do it. So you see what's going on here. Why are they doing this? It's fear. It's insecurity. They don't know who they are. And this is a product of being self-centered. Tim Keller says in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, that the number one problem in all relationships today is self-centeredness. And it's true. Look, any marriage, friendship, any type of relationship that you have, when you, if you really think about the problems you're having, all those problems can go back to self-centeredness in one or both of the parties involved and so i labor here to say look this is not a generation problem this is a human problem and this is at the core if we don't get this this is at the core of what it is the preacher is seeing as he looks and views life under the sun And so if we go back to oppression we see it as a fruit of self-centeredness i care more about me and my needs and wants than i care about your well-being Oppression is best defined as the accumulation or the seeking after profit without regard to the nature, needs, and rights of other people. When I was 10 years old, I collected baseball cards, football cards. I collected anything that was supposedly going to be of value someday. It was my currency. And if you've ever collected cards, you know that when you did that, there was always, you always had trades, right? You always met with people after school or maybe when you were going to spend the night at someone's house bringing the cards along, we might have some trades to make. And uh, this is where you learned, of course, the, the the foundations of capitalism. This is where you know Econ 101 was being dished out as I traded for Barry Bonds and hopefully got away with giving him to up and coming rookies that would make it. Um, right. But uh, wh- one day I came home from trading cards and I learned, uh, you know, learned learned a pretty interesting lesson here. You know, Having learned to be savvy and to spot weaknesses in other people through trading cards. I came home one day from being at a friend's house and I was boasting of my new possessions. You know, look at what so-and-so traded me for this card. They're idiots. And my dad heard all this. And thankfully, you know, as I was boasting, he heard all this and rightfully demanded that I go back to that person's house, knock on the door, tell that person what I did, how I cheated that person, and give them their cards back. And not ask for mine. Did not see that one coming. Did not see that one coming. But it's an, at an early age, right? It's such a good example of what it means. You know, what, what, I could say it like this. Why didn't I see that coming? Because of my self-centeredness. Like what I was doing was right in my own eyes. And as a kid, what people were for was for bettering my own life. Was making me and my status better but apart from the obvious, why is this so bad? Like, why would, we, you know, why would we say that that is ripping somebody off? What is the moral grid that is deciding or saying that this is bad? And this is what makes oppression so bad is that it def- denies humans their natural-born dignity by being made in the image of God. This is what is crushing the pastor as he looks out and he sees the way people are treating other people. The way that they're using other people. And this back in verses 1 to 3. It's what's so troubling for him. And he sees the oppression that we have seen in pictures of starving children in parts of the world due to the oppression of dictators, our government policy. He sees the image of God and man being stripped of his or her dignity, and this saddens him. And it makes us uncomfortable because we want to sort of excuse ourselves from this. We don't want to be responsible for this, but we are. We're We're part of this. We're part of this, and this is the unsettling part here as we as we look at this. It saddens him to the point though, and I think this is this is where it should drive us, that he's willing to say what it is that we all think when we see this stuff. Man, would it be better if that person wasn't even born? And if you notice who the winner is here in verse three, it is the person who hasn't been born yet. It's the person who hasn't been born and hasn't seen this stuff, because it's that awful. Now, the preacher doesn't actually believe that it would be better if they wouldn't be wouldn't be born. He simply is highlighting the horrible effects of oppression and what happens when we love ourselves more than our neighbor. And the sin underneath that sin, friends, is self-centeredness. It's one of the effects of the fall in Genesis three. It is thinking about me and not we. And this runs throughout the entire chapter here. Envy is the same. Gibson writes this, he says, deep in our hearts, we want to be noticed and to be the focus of attention. And that desire is capable of driving all we do and the reason we do it. Jesus tells me that I am to love you. But what I often feel is, what will it take to get what you have? And we can kind of laugh at that because we know it's true. We know it's true. That is self-centeredness. It's what is underneath our envy, the same for the me-centered ambition that we see that finishes this chapter. And that desire to matter and to have significance significance, either in our own eyes or in the eyes of someone else. And this causes me to treat you as a means to my end because that is the goal of self-centeredness. That I would be lifted up and remembered and that you wouldn't. And see, this is what it really, this is what I'm really beginning to love about this book. And I hope that you are too. Um, and that is, it doesn't, you know, Ecclesiastes isn't just showing us, right, right, the sin in our lives. It's not just showing us the, the causes of these things. It's showing us the aftermath of these things, which is where you and I live. This is why this book is so relevant to us. It is showing us life under the sun, the oppression, the envy, and the hollow self-madeness. And as it turns out, we are to blame for the vanity we experience day in and day out. And if we're willing to look closer at the wisdom of this text, we'll also find that it's it's trying to give us a way out too. And this moves to the third point: What do we do with this? You know, if the problem is self-centeredness, and it's not a generation problem, it's a human problem. What's the solution here? The solution is simple. Here's the wisdom. Share your stuff. That's the solution. That's what you all got dressed up to hear. Share your stuff. Don't oppress people. Share with them your knowledge, your possessions, your, your authority, right? your privilege, your opportunities. Don't envy. Share your home, your food, your drink, the good gifts that God has given you. Don't seek immortality through power at the expense of others. Find significance and meaning in the mundane by loving your neighbor and creating ways for him or her to flourish or thrive. In other words, share your life with others because that is what people are for. It is gift. And it's that easy. Oh, but if it were. Why is this not Sinking in. Why, after so many generations, have we not fixed this? You know, we put men on the moon. I just saw amazing pictures from Saturn. But we can't fix this self-centeredness in our lives. We, we can't fix this ability to hold our things loosely. And to give up something of our own lives so that somebody else might flourish. So how do we do that? How do we get from being people who are bent inwards To becoming people who are outward facing, other centered. How do we stop living our lives committed to our own flourishing and begin to commit to the flourishing of others? And you have to change the way you think about yourself and you have to change the way you think about others. You have to rethink what people are for. And the Bible's way of showing us this ultimately finds its ending in the life of Jesus. See, so we look at the life of Christ, we see something that under the sun's lens doesn't make a bit of sense. And we, we have to, you know, we, I'm going to pause here for a second. We are the benefit, we, we benefit in Western thought because, we're, you know, sharing our stuff and the things that we see of Jesus has made its way throughout the years. And this is kind of, maybe we call it Christian, maybe we don't. This is, we just call this life. But look, when we look at Jesus and we see a man giving his life away for the sake of others so that they may find life. When we see a man giving up wealth and possessions so that others might become spiritually wealthy. When we see a man giving up power and authority so that others might flourish. These were not virtues. In Rome. These were not virtues. Right. In the first century. When Jesus walked this earth. They were weaknesses, friends. They were things that if you were to do this. You're just kissing your life goodbye. You have no chance of making it. You have no chance of building anything for yourself. This is not the way to live. But even as we look at Jesus. And we sort of pull him out from the gospels. And bring him into Ecclesiastes. And say look he shows us how to live. Showing us how to live doesn't change us. Something else has to change us. And what changes us is seeing why Jesus lived this way. Seeing why he loved us. And he loved us. Not because we were lovable. right? He gave himself for us. Not because we deserved it. Not because we were not self-centered for a time. He, he gave himself to us. It's because that's what he does. He loves first. He loves first. This becomes the ultimate way that we begin to relate to others. Nothing will, will, will permanently change us until we begin to enter into the grace of God and Jesus Christ. As we look at Jesus, we see that he, you know, while we when we look at the why there, we begin to see that as he shared himself with us, his status, his wealth, his favor before God, his time, his tears and his blood, that this is the beginnings of how we will begin to open our lives to other people. And the cross is the power to do this, because as we see God in Jesus Christ as the ultimate one who was oppressed with no one there to comfort him. We begin to understand that He did this for you. This is grace, and grace is the only thing that changes truly how we relate to others. Because I can still be kind to you, and in my kindness, long to benefit myself. But grace says, I will empty myself, I will pour out all my possessions, I will give of my life for nothing more than that you might flourish. But here's the deal with wisdom literature that we haven't talked about yet. Yes, wisdom literature, ultimately, like any part of the Bible, finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He was the one who didn't have anybody to comfort him on the cross. I get that. But if we're to leave here at this point, we're to abandon the point of wisdom literature in the first place. And that is that you might embody its wisdom too. You are to care for the oppressed. You are to care about the envy that resides inside of you. You are to care about the isolation that your decisions are making for you in this world. You are to love your neighbor. This is why Jesus says this is the second greatest commandment. The first is to love God himself and the second is to love neighbor. It's that important. It has the ability to change everything about our lives. So practically, to return to the wisdom of the text, this looks like one thing that I'll leave you with. It looks like changing what we value and love because we see how valued and loved that we are in Christ. And this allows me to love my neighbor more than me. It allows me to think of we and not me all the time. Notice the Proverbs there in, in, in verse 5 to 6. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. You know, it, it, it takes getting underneath all this stuff to get to this proverb, doesn't it? we left it here for the end. But it's a picture of two extremes. It's a picture of two extremes. Idle laziness in verse 5 and manic busyness in verse 6. And laziness, friends, though we may not think about it this way, is essentially just another way of hating your neighbor. Well, Why would that be? Because if you are lazy, you have nothing to offer that person. You have nothing to give that person. Instead of embracing life and giving yourself to others, you, like the sluggard, only give yourself to yourself. You ruin yourself, is what the preacher is saying there in verse 5. But no better is the other extreme of the manic who is busy. You've got your hands full of work and success, but is it worth it? Self-promotion begets self-promotion. Busyness begets busyness. And we never stop and ask, what is all this for? When does it stop? And it doesn't when it comes to self-promotion. Unless your value and love come from somewhere else, you will never stop loving yourself. When we receive Christ, when we experience his grace towards us, there is a contentment there, there is a rest, there is a quietness, is what the text says. That I find because the cross of Jesus is both the how and the why to stop living for myself and to start giving myself away to others. If Ecclesiastes shows us that the value of life here is not what you earn or how far you go with your career, it's who you relate to, this forces me to rethink why I do what I do in this life in the first place, but also what can I give up so that certain relationships might flourish? And that is a backwards thought today. That is a backwards thought. Two are better than one, and if one is better than, than and if two is better than one, then three is better than two, and four, and so on and so forth. Like we need each other. Right? We need to be nourished by each other. We don't need to use each other. And the way that we get there, the way, that we, the way that we stop using people for our ends, the way that we stop committing ourselves to our own personal gain is living under the commitment that Jesus has given us and himself. So while the answer to what we might give up is something that we might have to think twice about as we leave here this morning, you know, what would I give up? So that other relationships might flourish? Well, we might have to think twice about that. We do so knowing that Jesus never thought twice about what he would give up in order to come in and be with you, to give his life for you, so that you, friend, might flourish. This is what changes what we value and love because we see how valued and loved we are in him. For now, let us apply this wisdom today to our relationships, to our communities, so that the answers of the question what people are for is ultimately not shaped by personal gain or individual commitment, but that it begins to be shaped by the cross and God's commitment to us. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chapter in all the wisdom that it has that we are just scratching the surface of. Father, we know that our relationships with one another are broken. We know that they are ultimately, in many ways, end in oppression and envy and isolation. Would you change that in our lives? And would you do that through the grace of your son, Jesus, who committed himself to us, who emptied himself and gave all that he has so that we would flourish? And would that not just be the example, but the why, (laughs) not just the how, but the why we go into this world loving our neighbor as you've called us to? Because he has loved us first. We ask that you do this For your own glory, we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.